This is African News Tonight on the Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yehaya Suhib in Washington. Here's what's coming up on African News Tonight. And then the reason why he said that he postponed the elections because there was a lot of contestation. Members of some members of the constitutional councils were there were some allegations that some of the some members of the constitutional council were corrupted. That's uh, reporter Alfa Jallo on the latest regarding Senegal's postponed presidential election. Details coming up also. Guinea's ruling junta appoints a new prime minister eight days after dissolving the government. And gunfire reported today in Chad's capital in Jamina. These stories and more on African News Tonight. Our top story, sporadic shots were heard today in Chad's capital near the headquarters of an opposition party. The government said that attack left several dead. International news agencies report the army has surrounded the offices of the Socialist Party Without Borders, or PSF, in central N'Djamena. The violence comes amid tensions ahead of a presidential election set for May, which could return the Central African state to constitutional rule three years after military authorities seized power. Accounts of the incidents from the government and the party deferred. A government statement said the agency was attacked by representatives of the opposition party led by its leader, Yaya Dilo, resulting in several deaths. The government also said it had arrested a member of the PSF who had attempted to assassinate the president of the Supreme Court. The opposition party's general secretary told Reuters the deaths near the security agency occurred when soldiers opened fire at a group of party members, killing several. Please check out VOA Africa for updates on this developing story. Senegal's president, Macky Sall, who faces term limits at the end of his second term, said in early February he was postponing the presidential election for 10 months, just weeks before it was set to take place on February 25th. But Senegal's highest election authority, the Constitutional Council, rejected that move and ordered the government to set a new election date as soon as possible. A national dialogue panel in Senegal has proposed rescheduling the presidential election yesterday and uh, in, to early June, the first new date proposed since Parliament voted earlier this month to hold the election in December. Senegal has been seen as a stable democracy in the Sahel region. The delay of the vote has sparked deadly protests across the country. For the latest... I've talked to reporter Alfa Jallo in the country's capital, Dakar. President Macky Sall initiated a national dialogue, which I mean started day before yesterday and ended yesterday night. And what we can just I mean gather from the national dialogue that um, 1916 of the uh, the presidential candidates who've been validated by the uh, Constitutional Council rejected I mean to uh, decline Mr. Sal's invitation. So those who were invited were uh, 
basically other members of the opposition, mainly those whose applications were rejected by the constitutional councils and uh, some high-profile um, religious leaders and a section, a cross-section of the civil society. And uh, of course, we also have some members of the opposition whose candidates were not accepted by the Constitutional Council. Uh, President Macky Sall, who faces term limits at the end of his second term, said in early February, he was postponing an election for 10 months, just weeks before it was set to take place on February 25th. Why did he, in the first place, come up with this idea of uh, postponing an election? Uh, President Makisar surprised everybody on uh, uh, the 25th February, five hours before presidential campaigning started. And, uh, and uh, that was just a blow to most of these opposition parties because most of them were already uh, started their campaign. And then the reason why he said that he postponed the elections because there was a lot of contestation. Um, members of some members of the constitutional councils were there were some allegations that some of the some members of the constitutional council were corrupted. Uh, that's the reason why uh, the presidential candidate for the uh, uh, Democratic Party that's carrying what the, the son of I mean, former Senegalese uh, President Ablaiwadi was also rejected. So as a result of that, President uh, Sal um, just um, adopted a decree and then annulled the 25th February elections, which has just later um, catapulted the country into chaos. Senegal, as you know, it's a rare stable democracy in a region rife with coups. And the delay of the vote has sparked deadly protests across the country. Uh, you are in Dakar. Uh, how is the mood in the country right now? Well, the mood is quite somber. Everybody, because in all places you go, it's the same thing. People are not happy with President Matisal. People are not happy with the fact that he has just annulled the 25th February election. And traditionally, Senegal is the, they are known for holding their elections in February. So, so people are talking, even if you are in the bosses, if you are in the marketplace, in all sectors of society, people are discussing that. But that's not all, because if in, uh, um, a, 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 an organization or a coalition of a civil society group and some opposition parties uh, calling themselves, let's protect our election, asking you Senegal, uh, asking you elections. Uh, yesterday, they called the Senegalese to paralyze the economy. Transportation, people will not go to work. Teachers will not go to, 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 to classes. Students will not. So everything could be stopped. But unfortunately, only few people heeded their call. I was out and about yesterday, and I found out that some people, most of the people went to work. Uh, the marketplace was, everybody was in there. Only the teachers, some of the teachers, government teachers, heeded their call. Some schools were not open yesterday. And, and lastly, Alpha, at the launch of this uh, national dialogue, uh, President Macky Sall yesterday proposed a, a general amnesty law addressing the protests in which hundreds of people were jailed. So uh, would this affect Osman Sonko, the popular opposition leader who is currently in jail? Yes, that's a very good question. And uh, uh, Macky Sall just categorically made it clear that um, the amnesty that he is proposing will not cover those two courts cases in which Mr. Sonko was found guilty and uh, in the event he was arrested and sent to jail. 
That was reporter Alfa Jallo. He talked to me from Dakar. The United Nations General Assembly has asked the International Court of Justice to review Israel's occupation practices. Opening a week of hearings, Palestinian representatives asked judges to declare Israel's occupation illegal, saying their advisory opinion could contribute to a two-state solution and a lasting peace. Many countries used their 30-minute presentations to argue that Israel is violating the Palestinian people's right to self-determination. Israel submitted a written argument that the proceedings were harmful to ongoing efforts to resolve the conflict and the questions posed by the UN were prejudicial. Mayrav Zonsin, an Israeli-American senior analyst of Israeli-Palestinian affairs at the International Crisis Group, spoke from Tel Aviv to VOA senior analyst Mohammed El-Shanawi about these developments and Israel's public sentiment towards the potential pause in the Gaza war. Well, I think this is part of a process that we're seeing happen in international forums in which Israel's years of occupation are starting to be held accountable. You know, this is a non-binding resolution. It's a process that will take a long time. I think anybody who understands basic post-World War II rule of law understands that a military occupation is illegal and not legitimate. Of course, in Israel, it's not spoken about that way. So that's why this is... Is very significant. It's also significant because the U.S. policy on settlements and on the occupation, uh, while in rhetoric, has been, you know, to condemn them, mostly has not done anything about it. So I think in large part, this specific uh, hearing kind of makes an, an actor like the U.S. look kind of embarrassed because they continue to support Israel pretty much without condition and they continue to supply aid and military uh, weapons all the time. While you see that in international courts of law, in the highest courts of law, Israel is is on trial for its occupation. And of course, there's also the ICJ genocide hearing by South Africa, which in some ways is much more substantial. So in, in all these cases, you have Israel kind of being put on trial in many ways. And so I think that's putting a spotlight on, um, you know, years and years of destructive policies. As the Paris negotiations to achieve a pause in the fighting to allow the return of some of the 134 hostages held by Hamas continued ahead of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, Israeli ministers have said that unless a deal is reached, Israel will launch its long-awaited operation against the southern Gaza city of Rafah, where more than a million Palestinians have sought shelter under increasingly dire humanitarian situation. What is the Israeli public view of this situation now? Well, the Israeli public supports the war as far as the need to defeat Hamas and to no longer have Hamas in power in Gaza. So there's consensus around that. And there hasn't been much opposition at all to the way in which Israel has waged this war. People want to see the hostages come home. There's also a strong pressure from the families of the hostages and from released hostages to prioritize that, which was not a priority in the beginning of the war. So the public wants to see the hostages come home, but they're somewhat split about how to achieve that or whether it can be achieved. Some believe 
that it's a trade-off so that if you want to destroy Hamas, you might have to sacrifice that and stop the war either permanently or for quite a long time in order to get the hostages home, which is the framework that we're starting to, to see right now with Qatar and the U.S. and Egypt and Paris. Others believe that the hostages should be sacrificed if need be because the ultimate goal is to get rid of Hamas. Now, get rid of Hamas is also unclear because we are now almost five months in and we see that Israel hasn't had a strategic breakthrough and that even military intelligence officials believe that Hamas will remain intact on some level. So some Israelis feel like the only real victory that you can get now is to get the hostages safely and home and alive. But nobody really knows at what point the negotiations will have a breakthrough, whether we'll see a temporary ceasefire or a longer ceasefire. Nobody really knows at this point. But the Israeli public is very clear on the fact that they don't want Netanyahu in leadership. Some want elections now. Some believe it should wait until after the war, but that nobody knows when this war is going to end. So the pressure for elections and for a change in leadership is growing. The pressure for the hostage deal is also quite strong. And then you have, of course, the domestic political interests of Netanyahu, which is to remain in power. And so a lot of people don't believe that he's actually interested in this deal because it would mean some kind of cessation of hostilities that would allow time for more pressure from the outside on Israel to continue the ceasefire and to stop the war. And that's something that, you know, Netanyahu doesn't want. So there's a lot of different factors in what's happening here. And I think Israeli society is mostly just hoping that the hostages can come home at this point, and then some hope that Israel can then continue with the operation. And we'll have to wait and see what happens. That was Mayrav Zontz Zin, an Israeli-American senior analyst of Israeli-Palestinian affairs at the International Crisis Group, speaking from Tel Aviv with VOA's Mohammed El-Shinawi. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. For more information on these and other stories from the continent, please see voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Guinea's ruling military junta says it has appointed a new prime minister eight days after dissolving the previous government. This as the capital Conakry was paralyzed on the second day of a general strike. Protesters are demanding the release of a detained union leader, lower food prices, and end them to be, an end to media censorship and improved living conditions for civil servants. The French news agency AFP reports that a spokesman for the junta leader, General Mamadi Dumbaya, said in a televised address that Amadou Oriba, an economist, is named prime minister and head of government. The spokesman said Oriba's main task would be to diffuse tensions with the 13 unions that called the strike that began on Monday. The protests have left two people dead during sporadic clashes in Conakry's suburbs. Thousands of delegates, including ministers, senior government officials, scientists, representatives from civil society and the private sector, are meeting in Nairobi to tackle some of the planet's most pressing environmental challenges. From the Kenyan capital, Ruben Chama reports. 
more than 4,000 participants of the sixth session of the UN Environment Assembly this week are gathered at the United Nations Environment Program headquarters in Nairobi. As the world's top decision-making body on the environment, the Assembly aims to help restore harmony between humanity and nature, improving the lives of the world's most vulnerable people. Inge Anderson is Undersecretary General of the United Nations and Executive Director at the United Nations Environment Programme, or UNEP. This assembly knows only too well that we are living through an intensifying triple planetary crisis. The crisis of climate change, the crisis of biodiversity and land loss, and the crisis of pollution and waste. These multiple crises are casting its shadow over every person on this planet, regardless of nationality, color, faith, or gender. The Assembly will focus on how multilateral action can address the world's environmental problems. It gives government officials, civil society groups, scientists and business leaders a chance to collaborate on global environmental policy. This forum, which we like to think is the world's most influential decision-making body on the environment, has consistently shown its unity and that unity that we need to overcome these crises that are facing us. And this year, this assembly is more powerful and more united than ever. And we will need that unity to safeguard planet Earth as we know it. Leila Benali is the assembly president and Morocco's Minister of Energy Transition and Sustainable Development. We are witnessing a series of wars and conflicts some of them with major international implications and sometimes distracting the governments and the major stakeholders from providing their time and resources to the most pressing issues related to the environment. During the week-long assembly, more than 150 national delegations are expected to debate 19 resolutions on topics such as improving air quality, addressing climate change, countering desertification and protecting biodiversity. The resolutions are not legally binding but are considered an important first step on the path to global environmental accords and national policy making. Ruben Chama, VOA News, Nairobi. One of the most important figures in American history is Thurgood Marshall, the first African-American to be appointed to the United States Supreme Court. As part of our series on Black History Month, we speak to Spencer Crew, American history professor at George Mason University and author of the book Thurgood Marshall, A Life in American History. Crew describes to VOA's Carol Van Dam how Marshall played a pivotal role in ending legal segregation in the United States. I think the area where he first got focused intensely is in the area of segregation education. And uh, probably the case that was important to him was the one that took place in Baltimore against the University of Maryland Law School. Uh, he had hoped to go to that law school when he graduated from Lincoln University, but they were not accepting African-American students. They suggested he find another place and he wound up going to Howard. But as he came out of Howard, uh, started working as a lawyer, one of the cases that he was excited about 
was a case to look into desegregating the law school in Maryland and was able to do that. So I think it's one of his first steps in that direction. But after that, he, he did a number of different kinds of things along those lines as well. In Baltimore, he worked with local leaders there to help desegregate some of the stores, which were not hiring African-Americans to be clerks or to work in the stores, even though a majority of their, of their clientele were African-American. So he was doing that, and he also began to work with school districts around Maryland to help them begin to desegregate their schools as well. So early on, school desegregation was a very important aspect of his interests. Speaking about education, there was a huge uh, Supreme Court case that he was pivotal in. What was that? That's the Brown versus the Board of Education case. Uh, that one was critical because it, it marked sort of a new strategy on the part of the NAACP. Prior to that, they had been really taking court cases to court to push for separate and equal education so that they were trying to force some of these schools in the South in particular, if they're not going to have a, a school, if they're going to have a separate school for African-Americans, they had to be equal to the school they had set up for white students as well. Mostly they started off with law schools and graduate schools. But by the time of the Brown versus the Board, Board of Education case, they had switched the strategy to not now argue that you know segregation in and of itself was illegal and unfair. And so that case was critical because the court ruled that segregation was in fact illegal and had to be stopped. And this was a major shift in how the courts had been interpreting the issue of segregation in the country. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it completely changed the face of uh, schools all, all over the country. And kids started being bused, you know, white kids and black kids to different schools, right? Well, it took a while. I mean, it didn't happen overnight. It, it right. you know, went in the 50s and early 60s. But yes, that was the, the impetus for that, that it began to force districts to think about how you equalize schools. One of the things that Marshall said that I think was very important to understand is that he recognized that the only way you could create equal education for students is to have black and white students together so that the funds would go to those schools for all the students. Because in segregation, the black schools very regularly didn't get as much in the way of funds. So they were looking for a strategy to force enough funding to provide real good education for those students. You mentioned the NAACP. What was his role with the NAACP early on? Uh, from the very beginning, he began with the NAACP working as the assistant to Houston, who was the you know, head of the legal department for the NAACP. When Houston leaves and goes back to private practice, Thurgood Marshall becomes the leader of the legal team there. And by the late 30s, early 40s, he's now the leader of the legal team there. And he does that up until he is nominated to be a, a court judge by uh, the Kennedys. And he was the first African-American to be appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court. When did he join the high court? And can you describe how relations were in this country back in that day? I'm going to be a little fuzzy about the exact date when he went to the court. But he certainly is the first African-American to be appointed to the Supreme Court. And it was, a, I think, a very bold choice by uh, Johnson to decide that he, it was time for that to happen and that Thurgood Marshall was the man to do it. And in part, it's because of Thurgood Marshall's national reputation. That was uh, Spencer Crew, George Mason University history professor and author of the book Thurgood Marshall, A Life in American History. He was speaking with VOA's Carol Van Dam in Washington. And lastly, 31 people were killed in Mali and 10 others wounded when a bus traveling towards Burkina Faso fell off a bridge in the country's southeast. 
The French news agency AFP says the accident occurred at around 5 p.m. yesterday. The Transports Ministry says the driver of a bus leaving Keneba Commune lost control of the vehicle, which tipped off a bridge. And with that, we wrap up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Douglas Mpuga, and our engineer, Adrias Regas, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.